Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I talk with Austin-based singer-songwriter and rocker Alejandro Escobedo. And later on, we'll review the long, long, long-awaited new album from Guns N' Roses. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now to welcome our newest affiliate. Greg, we are proud to join the airwaves at Bloomington Community Radio, WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, a surprisingly happening burg for music. A lot of great stuff there. Two of the uh, strongest indie labels in America today, Jag Jaguar and Secretly Canadian. Booker T. Jones of the immortal Booker T. and the MGs has roots there. That's right. But I think, you know, look, you're talking Bloomington, Indiana. There's only one artist you got to play. <laughs> now, we've had problems with him from time to time, and there's also been great things he did. But I wanted to, uh, you know, when we welcome a new affiliate, we play a song from an artist, great artist from the that area, John Mellencamp lives in Bloomington. He uh, he paints. He has a nice spread there. He's with his wife Elaine. He's got the five kids. And uh, my favorite Mellencamp song, he, he was very active in the uh, campaign that just passed. He's been active in politics his whole life. I think when he reworked that song that uh, Woody Guthrie first made famous, uh, in Mellencamp's hands, it was rewritten as To Washington. Right. Very optimistic, classic, people have the power kind of anthem. I think it's a good way to say hello to Bloomington. Eight years of peace and prosperity Scandal in the White House and election is what we need From coast to coast to Washington Washington. 
That's two Washington from John Mellencamp. Welcome to WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, to the Sound Opinion Stable. So we are now in our fifth year of the record industry suing its consumers, Jim, and uh, it's time that the consumers fight back, or at least that's been the indications that we've been getting in the last few months. We've had the Jamie Thomas trial of last year where Jamie Thomas decided to give back some of what she was getting from the Mm -hmm. Recording Industry Association and taking them to court. Now that legal proceeding is going on. A new development in recent days is that one of the most prominent attorneys in the country, Charles Nesson, a Harvard law professor who goes back to the days of the Pentagon Papers. I mean, he was representing the defense in the Pentagon Papers case back in the early 70s, is now going to bat for one of those consumers who is being sued by the recording industry. And the reason he's representing this case against one Joel Tenenbaum, a 24-year-old graduate student from the Boston area against the Recording Industry Association, is that he believes that copyright law is now allowing a private group to carry out civil enforcement of a criminal law, and he believes that is just wrong. Uh, The quote that I saw that was extraordinary, he said that the courts are being turned into a low-grade collection agency (laughs) for the recording industry. Which is essentially the way it's working. So here the student is being accused of downloading seven songs, making music files available. He's being sued in the amount of $12,000. He's offered to settle for $500. The recording industry says that's not enough. you got to give us the $12,000. Nesson, the attorney, is saying that's completely untenable. He says the recording industry is abusing the law by trying to intimidate consumers in exactly this way into paying fines to avoid long, lengthy legal processes. So he's saying, basically, I'm going to take this as far as it can go. It's an interesting case, and Nesson is a high-powered attorney who can actually make some of these accusations He stick. can do it. We've said it before. This has got to finally go to the Supreme Court for a definitive decision. Nesson's the kind of guy who'll take it there. Absolutely. Part two of this, Jim, is that Marilyn Hall Patel, remember this judge? She was the one who made the initial decision in the whole internet file-sharing debate back eight years ago that sort of precipitated all of this. She's the woman who killed Napster. Exactly. Basically saying that Napster created a peer-to-peer service, quote, knowingly encouraging and assisting the exchange of copyrighted music to the economic detriment of the record industry. Now, here's a judge who basically said, okay, Napster's wrong, but now that she's had seven years to look back on this, she says, you know what, we've created a mess here and it needs to be undone. Her quote is, It was not surprising that the notion of free music caught on. What is surprising is how the industry seemed to be caught so short. While it was fumbling the new ways to distribute digital music at a profit in the new age, savvy innovators were moving full speed ahead. Sadly, it is the artists and composers who have been the most neglected in this matter. I've heard you say almost exactly the same thing. (laughs) I'm glad that Judge Patel is finally agreeing with me. What she's proposing is a joint public-private administrative body that is going to represent consumers, artists, technology companies, the record industry, and they're going to look at all of these issues. So basically a comprehensive reform of copyright law and how it applies to digital music distribution in this country. Greg, it seems as if hardly a week goes by where we aren't doing a news story that deals with either Live Nation 
or Ticketmaster, and there's a good reason for that. These two monolithic companies are forces that cannot be gotten around in the music industry. I think uh, we have two really important developments now about Ticketmaster and Live Nation. First, Ticketmaster. Eagles tickets are still on sale for the umpteenth leg of their uh, never-ending long road out of Eden tour. Ticketmaster just brought Irving Azoff on board as its new major domo. Irving Azoff manages the Eagles. First thing he's doing is waiving the ticket fees, the egregious convenience fees that all ticket buyers hate. Well, it's a good issue, Jim, and I think actually it's a step in the right direction. Even though the Eagles ticket prices are still going to be overly inflated, I think the main issue here is honesty. Tell the people exactly what they're going to pay up front. When the ticket says $250, I do expect to pay $250 to see the Eagles. Which is ridiculous Eagles. to begin with. Yeah. Not to, not $250 plus yeah. $30, $40, $50 in Ticketmaster fees on top of that after I've already made the purchase. The honesty is not so much, Greg, because you know rather than paying $250 for that Eagles ticket, you're now simply going to pay $300. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And we still don't know. But at least you know. <laughs> well, at least we know what the final cost is. Yes. We still don't know why on earth it costs $300 to see this washed-up has-been banned, <laughs> in my opinion. Story number two is uh, even more disturbing in some ways. Live Nation is about to split from Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster sold all tickets to all Live Nation concerts. It's about to go off on its own next year. Live Nation will sell its own tickets. We've talked about these mega deals Live Nation is striking with artists like U2, J. Z, Nickelback, and Madonna, where it's handling not only all the tours, but the merchandise. And in some cases, they're becoming the record company for a Madonna. New Madonna records will not be on Warner Brothers. They will come at you through Live Nation. Now Live Nation has made a deal with the three remaining major music labels, Sony, Universal, and EMI, to sell digital rights management-free MP3s. Mm -hmm. of all the artists that are performing in Live Nation venues. It's going to be like a fake MySpace page. What does this mean? This means in one fell swoop, if Live Nation pulls this off, it will become the biggest record company in the world, yeah. or the biggest, at least the biggest record store. And I think it may change the way these major artists, the Jay-Zs and the Madonnas and the U2s, release music. Rather than waiting three or four years, as is the case with most of these major artists, for a new album, we may see more frequent music coming out from these artists in the form of, you know, a couple of singles here and there, or a single of the month type club. So well, it'll yeah. be interesting to see where this goes. You go to the Beyonce show, you buy the Beyonce t-shirt, you buy the program, and you buy the new single. Right. You know, the problem we have with this is that it really is about selling widgets. I just want to read a quote to you from uh, Live Nation CEO Michael Rapino. This is how he described this new plan. Looking ahead, our primary goal remains centered on maximizing our global concert pipe for our client, the artist, and expanding into direct ticketing slash online distribution, completing the world's only concert-to-fan direct platform for artists. The word that's missing in there? Music. Yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Let me take your hand There's something I want to show you Close your eyes and you can hear The music in the wind Out on the pier That's the Icantina So revealed I don't know what this means to you But it was everything that is Alejandro Escovedo with a song called Slow Down from his new album, Real Animal, the latest album in a career that stretches back to the 70s. 
just a kid out of California at the time, was in one of the first punk bands in the San Francisco area. In fact, his band, The Nuns, opened the last Sex Pistols show at Winterland in San Francisco in that January of 78. Yeah. Uh, went on to uh, form one of the first cow punk bands. Remember that movement mm-hmm. back in the early 80s out of the Southwest with Rank and File? Then went on to form a band that a lot of people loved uh, because they saw them live, but they never got their due on record. The True Believers, one of the great triple guitar threat bands out of Austin, Texas throughout the 80s. Escovedo went on to a solo career based out of Texas uh, starting in the early 90s and made a series of solo albums. And uh, arguably the latest one, Real Animal, is his highest profile release yet. It's autobiographical. It's looking back on how he started, what brought him to music in the first place. He and his band were coming through Chicago and we had them into the studio for a performance and a chat. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We are here in the Jim and K. Maybe studio with a great artist and a great band. Uh, Hector Munoz on drums, David Hulkingham on guitar, Josh Gravelin on bass, and Alejandro Escovedo on guitar and vocals. Welcome, Alejandro. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Alejandro, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, great record. Real animal. I think in uh, every one of your records, been a reflection of your life and sort of examining what's going on in your life. And I think this is perhaps the most direct line back to the reason you even picked up a guitar in the first place. Yeah. The guy, the, the guy on this cover looks like that punk in California <laughs> growing up on glam and, and punk rock. If we didn't know what a sweet and wonderful person you were, we might even be scared to be sitting with you. <laughs> that is, was the whole idea, Jim. This is a album. nasty album. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's going all the way back to the beginning. I remember when we were uh, touring, it was Susan and David and I and Chuck Prophet. And I just had this idea, and I kept talking about it as we were touring, you know. So when I got back to Austin, to Texas, I knew that I had to start writing songs. And I had written these songs, but they weren't really going anywhere. They're good songs, but there was nothing I, I could attach myself to. And so I called up Chuck, and I said, let's let's make this album that I've I've been wanting to do. Let's just try it out, you know. And you and Chuck did some time together in terms of just touring the same circuit you were both in well we were both rock in bands, bands yeah. yeah we both came from orange county mm-hmm. he was in la habra i was in huntington beach and so uh you know we b- were both surfers as kids i stayed a surfer longer than he did i believe but we were both in bands of course and he was in green on red when i was in the believers so there was a, a real connection you know i mean i knew that every reference that i might have whether it be the stooges or tim harden or somebody that i'd seen at the golden bear that he would understand that, and uh, he'd lived his life, you know, along along during the same times and have a lot of the same experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before we get too much further into this, let's hear a song from uh, you okay. and Vandal. What, what are we going to hear first? Let's do "Always a Friend." Always a friend. Wasn't I always a friend of you? Wasn't I 
That's Always a Friend by Alejandro Escovedo, live on Sound Opinions. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll have more from Alejandro and the band. And later on, Greg and I will review the much-anticipated album from Guns N' Roses.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our discussion with Austin-based rocker Alejandro Escovedo in a second here. What you heard as we were going out was Alejandro performing Always a Friend in our studio. And what you're hearing now is live audio from a performance last spring in Houston uh, with one Bruce Springsteen. Alejandro on stage with the boss. And I asked Alejandro what that was like. Bring my wine, my snakeskin boots somewhere I'll never find. Actually, if you go on YouTube at this very moment, you can see a uh, Alejandro wearing a I Just Died and Went to Heaven smile on his face, uh, <laughs> performing that very same song with, what's that guy's name again? Springsteen? Yeah, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And that was back back in the spring, I guess, in Texas, right? Yes, it was in Houston. It was in Houston. And uh, it was a funny thing because, you know, we share the same management. We both have John Lando management now. And so this was in the beginning of our relationship with John Landau, and Bruce was coming in through Houston. They were going to fly to the show, so they said, just come out and we'll go have dinner, you know? And so Kim and I, my wife and I, were driving. We were late, of course, getting to the gig. And suddenly this text message comes in and says, Bruce would like to do Always a Friend tonight. Are you in, was the question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and so, like, uh, at that point, I started sweating bullets, basically. Yeah. You know, and driving, like, even faster than we were to get there. And we got there a little late. Uh, didn't make the sound check. You know, that was part of the thing. Was, Can you be here in 45 minutes? I was two hours away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we get there, and uh, he's just a beautiful guy. Takes me into his dressing room. We go over the song twice acoustically, just him and I. He calls in the E Street Band, and then we went through it acoustically just in his dressing room once, and then in front of 18,000 people, I played the song with, with Bruce and, and <laughs> the right. E Street Band. All right. So that was the uh, trial by fire, for sure. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. That's got to be a golden yeah. moment in a, in a career. That was, it was really something, you know, at first, and I know if you look at the video, Little Steven's kind of trying to make sure I don't veer off into like, <laughs> bummer land you know and so like he's kind of holding me in and and uh you know at first it was kind of like i was scared to death you know as you can imagine but but then once the song started and I, you know what once i saw he was having such a good time himself you know yeah and the band was having a good time so i just felt like it's like playing with a band you know with yeah. our band you know it was cool was so, really so Landau, of course, a fa- uh, former rock critic who yeah. had written that great line, I have seen rock and roll future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Right. He, he's your manager now. Did he ever say anything like that? No, not to me, no. I have <laughs> seen the future of the future of <laughs> and rock and roll. it's not Alejandro Escobedo. <laughs> well, and, and he, he also doesn't take on too many clients. I mean, it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. How did that work out for you, that you got this? Well, we got it through uh, Ian Ralphini, who is, uh, I don't know if you guys know him. He's one of the last great record guys. Him and Bruce Lundvall ran Blue Note Records. Okay. And Ian is an Englishman from, uh, uh, he actually ran the Warner Brothers office in the 70s when the Faces and all those great bands were on the label, you know. Ian has championed us throughout this boxing mirror and, you know, this transition from back porch over to EMI. Mm-hmm. When uh, I had had another manager and it was 
obvious that I needed a new management, and so Ian set up a luncheon, and it was it was great, you know. Mm-hmm. So it worked out. Yeah, <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Like <laughs> anybody could call up John Landau and be and be managed. No, no, you know the thing is, is that for them, I think, I mean, they, you know, they kind of went to. In fact, I'm positive that they went to Bruce and kind of got his blessing on the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that he's he's very much a part of what happens with that management company. Well, it brings up a great point, Alejandro. I think just by the level of the people that have uh, played your songs and worked, wanted to work with you, kind of an, a, an indication of how high respect you're held in. The Box of Mirror, you know, John Cale was your producer. On The Real Animal, it producer's Tony Visconti. Is that the kind of thing that you, you can look at and say, well, this validates what I've done? I mean, is that, you know, obviously it's not about millions of record sales for you. It hasn't been. Does this kind of thing sort of make it a, a valid thing to you to say, you know, it was worth it these last 30 years doing this for a living? I think so. You know, I mean, for me, like you say, I don't sell a lot of records, you know, but yet the people who have enjoyed the records and written about them, you guys, I mean, you've all written such wonderful pieces about the music. It makes me feel, because that's how I grew up was reading Mm. Lester Bangs and, you know, Chris Gow and all those guys, you know, and they pretty much shaped what I liked and I didn't like in music. So to have that same kind of thing where how many people bought the first Velvet Underground record? Maybe a thousand. And yet but that they went the, on to influence more people than anybody in rock. That was basically. Lester's great line, yeah, is that yeah. everybody who bought it went out and started a band. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And, I, and, and, you know, I think it comes with the territory when you follow that kind of thing or you want that kind of result out of your music or your art. Well, and I think that comes through in Real Animal. I get no sense of, of regret as you look back. No, I don't have a sense of regret. I really don't. Musically, we've always wanted to do what it is at the time, you know, whether it was a 15-piece orchestra that just played in Austin or a duet, David and I go out, or Buick McCain, because mm-hmm. that was just part of, you know, what I love to do, you know. So it just seemed like a very natural thing for me. There was one regret, though. Yeah. I know that there was an excellent song called Castanets <laughs> that you were not allowed to play, or, or you chose not to play for several years because it showed up on some guy's iPod. And you yeah. Didn't. yeah, another Texan. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> guy yeah. at the end of Congress, yes, right? Yes, uh, uh, George W. Bush. Plays Castanets. She works with Yeah, it ended up on his iPod list. You know, we did find out, I must say this, uh, that we found out that it wasn't our version, it was the Los Lonely Boys version. Oh. oh. Well, that says, speaks volumes, doesn't it? So we didn't it? get that right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bush doesn't even have the good taste to pick the, the original version of yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, let's get another song, Al. What, uh, what are you going to play? What should we play? How about... Uh, animal? Yeah, a real animal.
Title track from Alejandro Escovedo's recent album, best song Lou Reed never wrote. <laughs> uh, Al, let me ask you. I know uh, Jonathan Demi has been talking about making a film with you. One of the the, the best directors to use music uh, in his movies and to make music movies is filmed films with uh, Neil Young and 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 Talking Heads and and uh, Robin Hitchcock. I know he's been busy with Rachel getting married. Finally opened. Are you guys gonna get this happening soon? This movie. I'd love to. You know, I'd like to do... It's about time to do a movie. We've we've never had a video, even. You know, it's wow. funny because um, I started this whole thing wanting to make a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, that's how, I mean, that's how I started playing when I was 24. Yeah. I was in this band, The Nuns. And since we were so bad that we couldn't play, we became the band. It was about the worst band in the world, was the movie. Yeah. Making noise today. Now I would really love to have something on film as far as the performance of the band and just kind of archiving the stuff that we've done, you know. There's been so many different incarnations of, yeah. of the group and, and, yeah. and different styles. And I mean, you, you have played with theater and you have uh, done it stripped down and you've done orchestrated. It'd be neat to do something that kind of capsulated it all. Well, you know, it's funny because originally that was uh, Jonathan's idea was that he really wanted to get the uh, – tearing down of Las Manitas in Austin, which mm. is that restaurant that, you know, is going to be leveled for another Marriott, right? We, we love it. It was this yes. breakfast place yeah. on the corner of 3rd and, yeah. and Congress. Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing place. And it was always the kind of center and hotbed of political and, you know, music, art, you know. She had that daycare center. She had the daycare center. My 
daughter went there. Hector's daughter went there. He was trying to, you know, connect that, the loss of Las Manitas with the music. And the way it was going to go down was that it was going to be as if, uh, you know, like we were outside busking outside of uh, Las Manitas, you know. And you guys are going into Las Manitas and we go, what's going on in there? There's a battle of the bands going on inside. You know? <laughs> so through this battle of the bands would be every phase from the nuns to rank and file band, you know, to string quintets, you know, to punk rock, uh, Buick McCain version, you know. Your whole life. And my whole life kind of transpiring in front of me as a battle of the bands. That That is a cool idea, and it, it dovetails with something. I wanted to ask you this question, but now you're saying that it's sort of eerie because I, I talked to Kale a few years ago about you. And he gave me this really interesting quote. He said, it's, uh, it's like there's a whole family in the studio when you're working with Alejandro. He says he's like this little character in the corner of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. <laughs> and there's all these characters floating around him. And he pulls them down one by one and writes a song about them. And when you hear a song like Real Animal, you think, okay, he's drawing a reference from a specific period in his life and a specific sound. Is that, is that how these songs have come to you all along? I mean, it seems like... A specific, almost a cinematic visual. Well, that's image had a lot to do with, to do with it, the actually. song. Yeah, because the first song I wrote was a song called "The Rain Won't Help You When It's Over" for the True Believers, and you could you could interpret it in many different ways, right? For me, it meant something in particular, but for everybody else, it was kind of vague, I guess, enough that people could identify with it as a love song or whatever relationship song. And then when I wrote this song uh, for the True Believers, also a song called um, Five Hearts Breaking, that was the first of the songs where I was really kind of trying to tell, make little movies inside of the songs, you know? And it's not an easy thing to do, but when it, when it has worked for me, I've really loved it. So hmm. it makes sense to make records like that for me. The film student never died. He no, just kept making not. films, but they, they uh, became records instead. He's just right? a little guy in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, let's have, uh, let's have another song. All right. right. This one's... Uh, I, I must mention that I co-wrote this record with Chuck Prophet. Yep. This is a song that we wanted to write for Jeffrey Lee Pierce of the Gun Club, who passed away. And then we realized there was a lot of characters like Jeffrey Lee that we've lost along the way that we wanted to address on this one. And people very close to me. So this is called Sister Lost Soul.
Sister Lost Soul, it's been an absolute uh, privilege for us to have you guys here. The mighty Hector Munoz back on drums, and uh, David Polkingham, Josh Gravelin, and of course Alejandro Escovedo. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I see people, all kind of people. I see them every day. To comment about our interview with Alejandro Escovedo or to tell us anything about this show, give us a call on our hotline, 1 888 859-1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to be back with our review of the first Guns N' Roses album of new material in 17 years, Chinese Democracy. Quite as much as we think. Work 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song by Guns N' Roses called Shackler's Revenge on the long, long, long-awaited Chinese Democracy album. Greg, I think it's only fair to talk about the history of this record. It's part and parcel of the story. It has been 17 years since the last new sets of Guns N' Roses music. Since then, the entire band that made that incredible album, Appetite for Destruction, in 1987, is gone. It's just W. Axel Rose, and many of the people that he replaced the original band with have gone, and many of those replacements are gone. Mm -hmm. There are no fewer than 14 recording studios and several dozen people doing everything from guitar to Pro Tools listed in the credits for this album. In 2005, March of 2005, the New York Times did a story about the economics of this album. It was already at a price tag of $13 million, and the Times called that article the most expensive album never made. (laughs) All right? (laughs) Who knows how much the final cost was, but now here it is. It has been made, or at least... It's in some places. It isn't everywhere. You have to go to Best Buy to buy this record. Just like the Eagles made one of those deals with Walmart, Guns N' Roses is spitting in the face of every mom-and-pop record store that waited 17 years to sell its new music, and they're making people go to Best Buy to buy this thing. From this point on, let's just talk about the music. Now you know the history. We're going to play a track called This I Love, which is indicative of a different side of Guns N' Roses on this album. This I Love by Guns N' Roses. I don't know why she wouldn't say goodbye Then it seems that I had seen it in her eyes Though it might not be wise I'd still have to try With all the love I have inside I can't deny I just can't let it die Cause her heart's just like mine She holds a pain inside This I love from the new Guns N' Roses album. Uh, no, it's not Miss Saigon. Uh, wow, Axel uh, auditioning for the next Broadway part that's available from the uh, next Lloyd Webber uh, musical, apparently. That is one of the examples of W. Axel Rose, as you so affectionately called him, Jim, on a ledge. Uh, going out as far as he can. This is something he never would have been able to get away with in the old Guns N' Roses. Slash, no, slash and Izzy, Izzy would not no, have allowed this. No. And and that's the both the aggravating part about Axel and also the part that's most endearing about him is that he is a risk taker. He does want to push the music outward and, and, and take risks that the old band never would have done. But it can result in egregious mistakes like that one. There are some good experimental tracks on this record. He does try to bring in some hip-hop loops and some industrial grind to sort of give Guns N' Roses a more contemporary edge. (laughs) 
when he's rocking, he's rocking pretty hard. But some of these more florid ballads, wow, I, that's yeah. just unforgivable. I'll cut straight to the chase. This is a Frankenstein monster of a record. It, it, it doesn't sense like a real band performing in the studio, but you can understand why it took so long. There are so many layers yeah. in these songs. It was basically an arrangement record. It's what? a production job there as are... opposed to a, a band record. Mellotrons, vocal choirs, yeah. French horns, Indian <laughs> sitars, Spanish guitars, samples of Martin Luther King Jr., Cool Hand Luke, and Braveheart. There's so much filigree on here that Everything. by the time you strip it all away on some of these songs... There's no song under yeah, the song. Yeah. Right? Look, the ballads are lousy. You're absolutely right. This I love in Street of Dreams, you gotta skip. I think that all those really busy overproduction songs, Madagascar and There Was a Time and If the World, those are lousy too. But, you know, then there's half a record left, and that's not bad. I was expecting, like, an Ishtar or Heaven's Gate-style uh, <laughs> disaster. Everyone was. You know, like Hollywood's greatest flops of all time, yeah. most expensive. You know, people go out and jump off buildings after those movies come out. And half of this record ain't bad. I got to say, you know, you, just out of sheer... You know, why did it take 17 years? You know you're going to have to listen to it. This is a burn it record. And the half that's good is good. And the rest of it, ironic given how much he hates downloading. Yeah. This is an album that was born for selective programming on the iPod. You got to throw half of it away right away. And the other the other half ain't so bad. At its worst, it is Miss Saigon. But at its best, it's a grandiose 70s rock album in the tradition of Queens, A Night at the Opera, or, you know, that track Live and Let Die from McCartney. That's what yeah. it reminds me of. Elton John. So, yeah, it's, it's a burn it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as we can here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island and slip a quarter in the jukebox playing a track we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what do you got? Jim, thank you very much. Uh, we had Alejandro Escovedo on the show this week, and uh, Alejandro, one of the things that he has always been terrific at during his shows is uh, picking out great covers, looking back on artists that have influenced him and, and bringing their music forward and in, maybe introducing a new audience to those artists. And I think one of the great things that he has done in recent years is to remind people of how great the band The Gun Club was. Mm. One of the songs that he has frequently covered in concert is a song called Sex Beat by The Gun Club. And it was from their first record, Fire of Love, in the early 80s. The Gun Club were a Los Angeles quartet fronted by one Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who was one of the legendary figures of that post-punk West Coast scene, sort of the uh, California answer to Johnny Thunders. Yeah. Uh, sort of a dissolute fellow, got in a lot of trouble with drugs and drink, but just a genius guitar player, songwriter, and frontman. Uh, you could not take your eyes off him on stage. And the Gun Club, in their first couple of records, were a terrific band. They combined elements of traditional rock forms like blues and, and rockabilly and punked it up. And when you saw them live, you were 
totally flattened by them because there was an energy on the stage updating these traditional styles of music. You know, much like the White Stripes, you talk about the White yeah. Stripes updating the blues. Well, That's more, what the Gun Club was doing 30 years we ago. We had Nick Cave on the show a couple of weeks ago. If Jeffrey Lee Pierce was alive today, I think it's easy to imagine him as the American Nick Cave. Absolutely. There's a key question there. Had he lived, what would Jeffrey Lee Pierce have done? He died in 1996 of his, of his troubles. Uh, he had a long history with drug addiction. It finally caught up with him. But he left behind a couple of great albums, most notably that first one, Fire of Love. And here's the very first song of the very first Gun Club record. It's called Sex Beat on Sound Opinions. Johnny's got a lot of his eyes in. Shirley's got a lot of her lips. Jake's got a monkey shine on his head. And Deborah Ann's got a tiger in her hips. They can twist and turn, they can move and burn, they can throw themselves against the wall, but they creep for what they need, and they explode to the car, and then they move! That's Sex Beat from the Gun Club, My Desert Island Jukebox Pick. Next week, Jim, we have something to look forward to. It's uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and we're going to shoot some turkeys, some of the most overrated albums of the year. We're going to tell you what they were, and we're also going to get some calls from our listeners, too, to help us out. We have some thank yous to say, Greg. Uh, Alejandro Escovedo was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse here in our studio. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, and our executive producer, our fearless leader, a guy who actually auditioned for Guns N' Roses right between Buckethead and Bumblefoot, <laughs> Tori Southside Malatia.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, Eris in Portland, Oregon. Love the show. I was just calling because I was a bit surprised to hear Jim knock rock band the way he did. It's like, I mean, here's this band. They play for drunken sailors in Hamburg. <laughs> they were the real deal. And now they're going to be part of the flashing lights of this stupid video game. As someone who loves video games and someone who loves music, I was pretty excited when the game came along. Found it to be a really great way to experience the music and uh, was just surprised that Jim didn't feel similarly. You really ought to try it, Jim. Anyways, love the show, guys. Thanks. Hi, this is uh, Kent from Cincinnati, Ohio. kind of wanted to comment on the uh, whole Guitar Hero opinions thing. Like, I don't really think Guitar Hero really warrants, like, that kind of, oh, integrity of music and, you know, the artist, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that really warrants that. I mean, I'm not a fan of the game. I don't enjoy playing it, and I think the choices that they put on there, the mute, the acts and the songs are definitely, you know, of dubious quality, but I'm a music student and a guitar teacher, and I can't tell you how many, like, video game kids who never would have really taken an interest in music, let alone wanting to learn to play an instrument and form bands. Like, I don't know how many students have been brought to that by this game. So I think we have to kind of look at it as something that's almost kind of good because it's getting a bunch of people interested in music that never would have been interested before. That being said, if I have to teach one more kid one by Metallica, I may change my whole opinion on the matter. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. And I'm going to keep listening. Hi, it's James from North Carolina. I'm calling just to uh, say I appreciate a lot of things about the show. In particular, I'm referring to the Bubblegum show that I just got done listening, and I thank you for the terminology in this case, because now I can uh, talk about a whole group of artists. I've kind of been without a genre to put them in, and I appreciate you reminding me that Bubblegum has been happening since the 60s, and it just won't stop. Long live the banana splits. And uh, thanks a lot, guys. Love the show. Take care. Brooks in Austin, Texas, and I don't know how I could possibly thank you more for playing the Banana Splits this morning. You completely made my week, maybe my month, and uh, now I have to go find Banana Splits music. Thanks so much. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Brian um, from Newberry Park, California. Just got done listening to the show on uh, Bubblegum Pop. And I thought it was fantastic. It's one of my favorite genres of all time, really. Some good stuff there. Jim playing uh, Tra La La was, was pretty great. That, that's got to be like maybe the most unabashedly happy song in the history of music. I, I don't know. i I got to get a ringtone of that, I think. The only, the only downside to the show was the bagging on Journey. That, that got to kind of bum me out. 
I mean, even as a guilty pleasure, at the very least, you know, but they've transcended that for me. But, Tim, I mean, really, the Naked Brothers, you know, I mean, how can you even think to tout those guys and then talk about losing audience members uh, over just discussing Journey at all? I don't know. Kind of disappointing, but uh, certainly not nearly enough for me to stop listening because um, I love the show. So thanks very much, guys. messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.